Hello, everyone. Welcome to Office Hours. Great to have you here. If you've sneaked in via YouTube and want to know more about what we do, the process is really simple. Just head on over to officehours.global on the web, our primary web portal for more information and links about the show. And there's actually an even easier way to do it. You will find a little QR code that makes an appearance here in the lower left-hand corner or the lower right-hand corner. I can't remember which it is for everybody. There it is. It's sitting over there. There that way. This QR code and the little bit of text to kind of right up there at the top of it, and if I can get it right, askofficehours.global is your key to asking questions during the show if you're not part of the traditional Mukana system. Uh, I'll speak about that in just a second, but if you use the QR code, shoot it with any phone or anything else that reads QR codes, it'll take you directly into a sub-queue that lets you put your questions in. The show is entirely driven by your questions. So it's critical. And if you want to get something answered by our august panel of experts, that's the way to do it as simple as possible. I mentioned the Mukana system. That is a little more sophisticated and you have to go in and sign up for it. But once you do that, you can not only put your questions in, you get two additional major benefits. Number one is you can vote on those questions. And the questions that get the most votes are the ones that we deal with earliest and in the most depth. So the voting becomes very important for prioritizing show answers. And the other thing is there's a community that kind of forms every day there in Mukana and chats about what's happening on the show and things like that. So it's a great place to meet other people that are involved in office hours and kind of get a little more involved in the show. So those are that's what's happening. Um, we have a second hour every day. Our first hour is general questions. Our second hour, we talk about a specific topic. And <laughs> Today is one of my favorites. If you've been in business forever or for any amount of time and you've dealt with projects that started out, you're thinking, oh, well, this is going to be a simple little project. And the next thing you know, you're up to your elbows in the weeds of complexity. Uh, we sometimes call that scope creep. And that's our topic today. How do you manage it? Uh, and if you've been doing tech projects for any length of time, you've encountered this kind of thing. I can't tell you the number of times that somebody says, yeah, we just have a small video. It's going to be, you know, just five minutes or something like that. We should be able to shoot it in a day and, you know, get it done in a couple of weeks. And the next thing you know, you're in the middle of a six-part major endeavor and you're having to go out and get all sorts of resources put together. Uh, and then you have to deal with the fact that what I quoted on is not what this thing has become. Can we please have this uncomfortable meeting about upping our budgets? Because you've now asked for 25 things that were not even on my radar in the beginning, but I can't really just give them all to you for free. So that's part of the discussion we're going to be having. Whatever aspect of it you want to talk about, but scope creep is a real thing. And we'll talk about managing it. Uh, how to do the difficult conversations of coming back and having it, you know, okay, this is really outside the scope and we're going to have to sit down and, and sharpen our pencils and get to what a realistic number for this extra work is. That's the, the second hour today, but we are in our first hour, which means that Mitch, uh, am I seeing Mitch? Yes, Mitch is there. Mitch, take us into the first hour questions. I'm hiding behind the microphone. Bill, thank you. Our first question, Guy Cochran from Seattle, USA. Zoom quietly released a new app for Apple TV over the weekend. Did anyone get a chance to test it out? Guy, you posed the question, so I'm going to I'm going to lateral to you to start us off on the discussion. Sure. This is one of the benefits of uh, having the Discord alerts on for channels that you like. And so I have an alert on for the Zoom channel, and Andy happened to bring up that this was uh, quietly released. And so uh, I went ahead and downloaded it. And uh, here's what it looks like. If you have an Apple TV, you have a new little Zoom app down there. 
and uh, if you have it hooked up to your continuity camera, so this is my my phone down here, and uh, pretty easy interface. You have new meeting, join meeting. You can say join meeting. Like here's after hours. I took it into after hours last night. Joins the meeting. You get all your people in there. You have the usual things where you can you know start your video. You can uh, uh, view. You can go in and, and uh, select speaker view. The the thing is, seeing this stuff on a on a uh, seventy inch TV is pretty crazy. So last night I had uh, Josh Josh Kaufman was in, and uh, you could you could go in there and see him on a seventy inch TV in your living room is pretty pretty frightening. But uh, it was it's pretty neat to to have this in my living room and uh, being able to see every little pore in somebody's face. I'm not sure if it was doing 1080 or not, but it looked really really good. So it's a cool cool new app. It's uh, might be this handy be a Technique for doing uh, presentation stuff where you want to bring in somebody in Zoom and throw them up on the big thing through a big screen via Apple TV. Interesting. Yeah. Oh, it's a, yeah for, I mean, the price of an Apple TV, I have the one with the Ethernet jack, which is handier because now you can actually have, you know, a hard wire instead of relying on uh, Wi-Fi. So I, I would suggest if anybody's going to get an Apple TV specifically for this, that you do get one with the... Uh, with the 4K uh, Ethernet. Uh, I think it's I'm hearing something in the background. Is that on your side or is that... Chris has it on, on my mic. side. Let me go ahead and pull out of yeah. that. No, it's Chris there. has his mic up. Oh, Chris, you have, you're you're live. All right. Uh, Alexander Knight wants to weigh in on this. Alexander? Yeah, I mean, just a question for Guy there. Uh, the Zoom app, does it have any settings? Can you turn on HD video? Can you turn on original sound? Stuff like you would expect in the desktop client? Yeah, so here's what the, the settings look like. If you go into the top right, you have this uh, general tab. And in general, you have your personal meeting ID, video preview, silence ringer, sign out. And then the next menu is microphone, which is you only get the continuity cam. But you do have uh, echo cancellation, uh, noise suppression, and then that's auto or high. And then you also have your camera, which in this case, I'm only seeing the only source is the continuity camera. So on your phone, it'll ask you, uh, do you, do you want to attach this camera to your, to your, uh, Apple TV and help and about, and that looks like, uh, all it's got. Well, still that's another portal for people to get into zoom and do things. So they've obviously spent a lot of time in development on it. Um, Jeff Keithley notes. I was just wondering, is, is the only way to get a camera into it the continuity cam? I uh, don't remember a USB capability. Correct. Right? right now, the only way to get a camera into it is a continuity camera, so you have to have an iPhone. And the continuity camera is that little Apple uh, in it for your phone or a little Apple app for your phone that does not only your face, but also doesn't it still have that kind of prismatic kind of thing where it'll show your keyboard? That was, that was a function of continuity camera when it was originally... In this one, it, it'll just say connected to your Apple TV, connected to living room, Apple TV, living room is using this iPhone as a continuity camera and microphone. You can disconnect to end the session and that's it. There's just one big disconnect. So you don't get controls at the phone level. That's no. interesting. Yeah. Okay. Well, still, we have something we didn't have before. So and it didn't cost us any extra. So nothing wrong with that. It's totally free. Uh, yeah. Cool. All right. Let's go to the next question. I've got Thanks a question. Uh, Disney Plus just upped their subscription price from ten ninety nine to thirteen ninety nine U.S. dollars a month. Do you plan to stay with them with a steep increase like this? And Mitch, you asked the question, so I'm going to come to you first. Oh dear, here I go. Um, I think that uh, 2024 is going to be the year of pruning off the services I don't need 
And Disney's pushing themselves uh, very quickly into that category where I've got to decide I don't need this plus service, I need that plus service. Uh, my only beef with Disney is that there's such a wide demographic of uh, programming. Um, a lot of it, I don't I don't watch kids uh, and or cartoons or animation is not my thing. Uh, but they do have a lot of other programs. They just picked up Doctor Who, which I like a lot. And that'd be the only reason I'd probably pay that extra $2, $3 uh, a month just so I could have that. But I think that uh, uh, there's a lot of shuffling going on behind the scenes in boardrooms uh, at Paramount. And uh, in fact, Paramount, I think I heard a rumor that they're talking about combining with Apple. Wow, yeah, wouldn't Apple that be TV something? TV and Paramount Plus all together. Uh, Alexander, your thoughts? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, a lot of us, we're all feeling subscription fatigue. Uh, with Disney Plus, I find it very valuable for me. Again, what kind of content are you interested in? For me, I end up watching a lot of the Marvel and Star Wars stuff, but the back catalog as well. I mean, I'm a cartoon guy, so there's lots of stuff there for me as well, stuff from my childhood that I like. Uh, And then also Disney, because they acquired a lot of that Fox content, there's a lot of movies in there. There's like Die Hard and lots of cool stuff like that. So, um, And there seems to be a, a good amount of 4K HDR content as well, which some other platforms don't seem to be as... Uh, good on so that's something uh, I find the image quality on the Disney Plus streaming service better than some of the other streaming services out there we've talked about Netflix before which is probably one of the the worst streaming services out there for streaming quality so I'm happy with it Courtney yeah and the increase is only three bucks you know you can't even get a cup of coffee for three bucks anymore uh, a month so you know it's not that bad I I like Disney I you know I Occasionally, I'll watch the Pixar stuff. I like the Pixar animations, and I like they have a, a pretty robust uh, section on documentaries and behind the scenes. They have a whole series called Behind the Attraction. And if you're a, a theme park aficionado, it takes you behind the development of all the attractions at Disneyland, Disney World, and et cetera, et cetera, Epcot, uh, which is an interesting, they're hour, you know, 30 minute to hour long uh, documentaries that cover the creation of and operation of all those uh, theme park rides. It's very interesting. Cool. CJ Cobo. I'll second the uh, the note on the behind-the-scenes stuff. I watched Elemental and really liked it, and then I was tickled when they had the good chemistry story of Elemental behind the scenes. Also, they've got School of Ro- or, uh, Schoolhouse Rock, the old cartoons, and uh, DuckTales. So, you know, where can you hey. go wrong? The DuckTales, you can't go wrong. Alexander, you wanted to come back in on this? Yeah, and just very quickly, too. You know, until they crack down on this, a lot of these streaming services, you can share logins. So I I forgot, I did forget to mention that my sister pays for Disney Plus and my entire family shares that account. So until they crack down on that, I think we're getting very good value for money for 13 bucks. (laughs) Mitchell. Yeah, I can't help uh, uh, commenting on the Netflix situation is why is it that one of the companies that has the stringent, uh, cons- uh, you know, uh, criteria for accepting footage has some of the worst output uh, that we got to see. I-, I just think that there's something wrong there with that. CJ, there's got to be a-, a crossover somewhere where the they're figuring out, okay, how much more expensive can we make it so that we can crack down on the password sharing and simultaneously drop the price and kind of be revenue neutral to say, hey, it's okay. We'll give you your old price back, but no more sharing. I I wonder how many people would continue on with that service. 
It's impossible to know. I got to tell you, it, it, there's been a couple of things that have uh, kind of piqued my attention lately in terms of my services. And because I produce advertising that runs on over-the-top services a lot, I have to subscribe to almost everything because I have to be able to go back to the client and report that I saw their spot when it was you know, on Hulu adjacent to a show and whether the quality was up and send a report on that if it is not. Because of that, I end up with too many services. I probably have eight or nine, uh, all the majors. And one of the things that I've started getting a little grumpy about, I was watching on Hulu. In fact, I was on Apple TV, and there is a new um, Apple TV program. At least I thought it was Apple TV. I was wrong. Uh, called uh, Murder at the End of the World or something like that. It's a, it's, it's a really good murder mystery thing. It's, I think Apple TV produced it or might have, but it's on Hulu. And so I'm watching it, and I watch about 40 minutes of the first episode, and the acting and the production values are great, and I'm really enjoying it. And then a commercial comes on, and I'm going, wait, what? I thought I was watching this on Apple TV but it was actually Hulu that had gotten linked through Apple TV, and Hulu had no commercials for the, a big chunk of it. But then all of a sudden, the first commercial took me right out of the show, and then like eight minutes later, another commercial pops up. And so I'm getting a little confused. Am I paying for services? Are they still running commercials? I'm supposed to be on the, the top plans on all of them. And so I think they're still trying to find ways. And I was reading a story just the other day that that they're concerned about moving too many people to the pay once, no commercials plan, and that the potential for income is so big on the pay-per-view commercial side that they're trying to kind of make that hard to achieve. I'm not real happy about that. Uh, it's it, as bad to me as I paid my money to see a movie why are you showing me commercials for something that I had to pay to get into? That It seems like a disconnect to me. I don't think there's anything I can do about it, but that's kind of where we are a little bit. Mitchell, you had some other thoughts? Yeah, that's like selling your car with no wheels on it. Um, as soon as you see or it. Or with a big of, ad on the dashboard that you can't remove. Yeah, I mean, it ruins, it <laughs> ruins your experience. Car. You know who else is doing that is uh, Prime's doing that now. They, uh, they, they, they're expanding uh, their repertoire of shows, but you have to read the small print says, uh, this is free view or this is uh, a rental. And I've got Prime and I'm thinking, don't I have access to everything? No, you don't. Yeah. And that's what's got me a little chuffed. If I've paid a premium price for the premium channel, I don't want you to insert advertisements in the thing that I want to see most. CJ, you have a thought? I just won't do it. I won't watch a program with advertisements. Even football, I have the radio uh, announcers from the local station piped in and then I hit a button and at commercial time it goes to music and then I when it's a house ad on TV I hit the button and it comes back to the radio announcers if we're just flicking through YouTube TV and a movie comes on this oh I love this movie I want to watch it I go find it on a streamer with no commercials because I, I would just refuse anyway it's it's too nice to not be interrupted and taken out of the story yeah, I think they're going to have some trouble with people being really upset about this idea of double dipping. You want me to pay for your service and then you want to feed me ads at the same time on the same service? Not so sure I'm good with that. Courtney? Yeah, the, I for years and years I had TiVo, you know, from its invention on out and uh, got used to that uh, viewing experience where I could choose the time that I wanted to watch something. And then streaming came along and uh, and 
you know, I said, oh, okay, well, now I can just find this stuff on streaming. But um, <clears throat> the problem is that now on streaming, TiVo, I could skip over the commercials with about four clicks of the remote and be right back into the program and not be taken out, uh, even if they, even if it was on commercial television. With streaming, half the time the streamers don't let you skip over the commercials, even if it's not a live stream. You know, if it's a, you know, you're you're pulling a something out of the archives and it has commercials in it and Hulu or something, you can't skip over the commercials. So, I really miss the uh, TiVo experience. Uh, Courtney. Oh, no, that was Courtney. Yeah, that sorry, was Chris Fenway. I, yeah, I sorry about that. Name. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, Cor locked. Courtney, it's almost like they want you to watch the commercials, isn't it? <laughs> it's almost like they it's, want to it's... force you to watch and the commercials. And darn, I used to make a living off of working on those commercials. Yeah, I loved, uh, I loved my TiVo uh, back in the day. So uh, I'll say this. I think it's ridiculous. Everything's more expensive. You know, bread is more expensive. Eggs are more expensive. Gas is more expensive. Disney's more expensive. But... I can't get rid of Disney Plus because the grandkids will lose their mind. Yeah. Jeff Keithley. I was just going to point out the simple part of, Bill, you're griping about paying for those commercials, yet you're a commercial person. I know. It's a weird thing. But I just think you can do it one way or other. It's the same thing I have with subscriptions. If it's a subscription like um, – a, a training service like lynda.com, I have no issues with it at all. You know, I'm paying for the content I want when I want to watch it. And if I stop paying, I, I stop watching it. Uh, that's one kind of subscription, and I don't have a problem with that at all. The other kind of subscription is when you're subscribing to a piece of software and you're creating content using that uh, subscribe software. And then if you stop paying for the software, you lose full access to the content that you've created. I have a serious problem with that. And I kind of put this whole over-the-top thing in the same thing. If you're asking me to pay you, you know, $12, $15 a month for your premium subscription, and that's what you've told me it's worth, and then I'm going on to this premium service, and now you're also feeding me ads, it feels like you're double-dipping, particularly if you have a $9.95 service that's supposedly with ads and the $15 service is without ads, and now you're putting ads on the $15 service. It's like, wh what? Wait. This just doesn't make any sense What if the ads are better? So if the higher <laughs> the rate, the ads are better. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. It, you know, these are, these are the you know, first world problems. This isn't somebody starving to death. But at the same time, they're trying to figure out how to maximize their return. And I have to say, you know, in a capitalist system, that's what their job is, to figure out maximum return for their investors. I get that part of it. But as a consumer, I'm not real happy about this. And it feels like I'm just now nothing but... Uh, a wallet, an electronic wallet, and all they care about is dipping into the electronic wallet as much and as as they can, and they're going to ratchet it up incrementally until they start seeing massive losses of subscribers and know that they've made a mistake. And that's just a bad way. I, you know, it seems a bit like a bad way to do things to me, but what do I know? Uh, let's see. I've managed to babble all the way to the point where I have to say, it's great to have you here. Um, we look for your questions every day. Your questions drive this show. So please 
make sure that you're in the system, uh, either through the QR code that pops up on the bottom of the screen occasionally during this. Uh, when the QR code pops up, as is up there now, that lets you get your questions in there or use the regular traditional Mukana system and vote on the questions. In any case, we appreciate your questions. They drive the show. Uh, you've got a good batch in there now. In fact, we've got quite a few questions. So I'm going to stop talking and let's get to the next one. Next question. And it's from uh, Douglas Carmichael asking, would you ever think of using an open source firewall router on a small form factor PC like a Protili, Protectili uh, vault in place of a small business router like an Ubiquity? Let's start with Jason Bache here. Jason? Okay. First, I reject the premise of the question. A router is not the same as a firewall. Um, it, it, like, it's just straight away. Just because you can do certain things and all routers have a firewall doesn't mean that they are the same thing. You have NAT traversal and DHCP resolution. So no, they are not perfect substitutes. As a concept, sure. Yeah, I have no problem with that. Would I ever do it? No. <laughs> Alexander. I used to do stuff like this in my younger years until I realized I'm not a security researcher. And no, for my business, for my home, nowadays with really, really good hardware, I'd rather somebody else who's an expert deal with this. It doesn't mean that you can't, and I don't want to discourage you if you if you feel like you want to mess around with stuff. But, I mean, when it comes to security, I wouldn't want to take a risk like that. And unless you're Steve Gibson, I wouldn't roll your own. There you go. Next question. Next one in from Andy Kokendorfer from Vieira, Florida. What is MOQ, media over QI, QUIC, streaming? Is this a low latency HLS? You know, I wish I had a clue, but I don't. I'm not that technical, so I don't really know. Uh, low la Well, it could be low latency uh, HLS. I, I know that every streamer, there's just all sorts of research going on out there to try to make, to put as many... Uh, decent bits into as small a stream as possible. And this is how content is being delivered increasingly. I can't remember the last time I actually watched an over-the-air broadcast of anything, even in a, a restaurant or bar or something like that. It seems like everything is now delivered by a digital cable somewhere. So uh, I wish I had some more help for you. It doesn't look like anybody on the panel today has that expertise, Andy. Uh, one thing we could do is just hold on to your question, make sure that you uh, keep it around. And Let's see, what would be a good day? Maybe come back on Thursday. Thursday is kind of our video thing. And um, while we have a great brain test today, um, it looks like that's as well as we can do with your question. Let's move to the next one. And it's from Tony Mobley in Noonan, Georgia. Tony asks, is the Zoom app on Apple TV a good thing for professional video production? Uh, Jason, what say you? My immediate thought is that it's not a bad thing. It depends on how you use it. But, you know, in the same way that the the, um, you know, the best camera is the one that you have. So, too, is the ability to put Zoom in more places. That makes sense. Jeff Keithley? I think it's more targeted at doing uh, boardrooms or locations that you just need to have a bigger display. Uh, no, not for video production. I don't see it. Guy Cochran? Yeah, I was just playing with a little bit more. Um, over NDI, being able to bring in the uh, gallery view is pretty cool, but I just noticed that in here you do have the ability to go under uh, modify video effects. If you did want to turn off uh, center stage, you can, and when you turn it off, you have the ability to, uh, so that's on. Actually, are you guys seeing that? Yeah. Okay, yeah, we just saw it kind of growing, uh, at least on the yeah. thumbnail on your so screen. So that, that's center stage on, and then you do have the option to go in here and and zoom in. So you can use the the different, uh, yeah, so you can zoom. So this this can be interesting for 
I don't know where, where you'll use it, but it can be, it can be some, I'm sure I'll figure out a way to use it, but bringing in the gallery view number one over a $149 device is pretty cool. So that's, yeah. that's one thing I'd use it for. Well, it looks like you could get to uh, the correct uh, Fenwick Framer framing using that zoom, so that would make it look a little more office hours. So, any additional capabilities, Chris Fenwick? Thoughts? Uh, when I first saw it, the first thing I thought was, "Oh, this would be great for talking with the grandkids in Colorado." Yeah, well, yeah. there's probably a lot of people will want to use it for exactly that kind of thing. I mean, there are far more people in that class than are in the professional production class. C.J. Covell. The folks that are really sweating, I think, are the ones who, the like the polycams of the world, who they sell one of those X52 integrated conference room bars for four or $5,000. And now all of a sudden, uh-huh. you know, if you have an, a team, an executive team with, half, with a little bit of technical aptitude and they don't need to be babied to have everything just work, you can get that set up for not a lot of money. Uh, yeah, that's uh, interesting. Quickly, Go ahead. I think the other thing that's that's of interest is... Uh, how will this um, ding their Zoom Room business model? Because they want to charge five hundred dollars per room per year. Yeah, the, to the get Zoom access does to Zoom more. Rooms. I get it, but is this enough to uh, supplant, you know, a percentage of Zoom Room uh, accounts? Guy, you've had the most time so. kind of playing with it. Do you think is it simplified enough to appeal to a non-technical person who just wants to? Zoom from uh, either a boardroom or some other venue. I could see it, but uh, I mean, again, you have to use one of these uh, expensive uh, um, iPhones as the camera, so you're going to have to drop in a what nine hundred dollar phone. I don't know what yeah, the base model has any is. Of those laying around. You do. Well, <laughs> it is very popular out there, and and you know, Alex has told us over and over again that that kids, particularly the the teens and the preteens are very into iPhones. So I wonder if they will start their Zoom adventure uh, increasingly on this kind of technology. Courtney, your thought? Well, this technology has been around for years. If you have Chromecast or a TV that supports it, and a lot of TVs do, uh, you could cast your TV from your phone, Android phone. Uh, So, hey, it's not new in the Android world, but uh, you you don't have to have an external piece of hardware plugged into it usually, and even if the TV supports uh, Chromecast. Yeah, I'm sure that, you know, when when Apple and Zoom sat around saying, what can we do together? This probably was, from an engineering point of view, not a terribly heavy lift. So they had the talent and said, well, let's enable it and see what happens. So it'll be interesting to watch it and see how it grows and whether it becomes something that a lot of people use or just a few people use or whether it will find niches like the boardroom where Apple TV will start to take a little bit, as CJ said, uh, take a little bit of ground from the the high-end polycom type. We're the guys who do your boardroom and, and you have to spend a chunk of money with us to get that done. Let's go to the next question. Alexander Knight in Port Coquitlam, British Columbia, Canada. What little quality of life workflow improvements have you implemented recently to make your production smoother? Jeff Keithley. Finally decided to ditch a, a fairly large Unity system and uh, moved up back to our VCOM system for comms. And that made all the difference in the world, especially with the WebRTC capabilities that it has. I can now drop in a multi-view, have that in my comms panel, and it's just, it's been a game changer. So much simpler for people that are 
remote producers or for production people that need to just see a multi-view, but still also be in comms. And because it's WebRTC, it's running through a browser, so it's much easier for just a novice to jump in. They don't have to worry about what what app do I need? What what do you mean by a server? Why do I have to put that in? It's just it's, it's made a big change in our workflows. Is it as accessible on things like just regular cell phones as the Unity yes. system? That, yeah, so that's good. So yes. they've, you know, once upon a time, comms was a very specific thing that unless you were in professional broadcast, you didn't deal with very much. But it's but a boy, full matrix system versus a um, sort of, I don't know what you would call Unity. It's almost <laughs> like a, a mu- it's a multi-channel clear comm effectively. I always equated that VCOM was like using an RTS or or a uh, a full-on matrix, whereas or an Eclipse maybe from the ClearCom side, but a Unity equivalent would be like a ClearCom is just instead of two or four channels, it's six, and it's just not as direct and not as easy to use. Hmm. Well, this is why when you get bigger and bigger, you need to get out of the general equipment and get to specific tools that are designed to do this job. You, f- you often find that it enables a lot easier, uh, less distracting workflows, which in professional production, that's worth its weight in gold. If there's something that just works every time, you don't have to think about it, does the job you need exactly as you need it. It's almost always worth an investment to get that kind of capability. Let's move on to the next question. Andy Kokendorfer from Vieira, Florida asks, monitor cleaning, are used clothing dryer sheets a good idea? This has surprising traction here in the panel. Jeff, start us out. Are you using Bounce or Dawn? <laughs> just no, no, no. There, there's coatings on dryer sheets. Um, said coating goes to monitors. Uh, it also picks up dust dent, and, and things that will scratch the face of your monitor. Uh, no, 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 no. Jason, do you have a different point of view? Oh, no, no. Allow me to back up. Absolutely not. Okay, so here's where here's where these this idea came from. Um, If you had a CRT, a cathode ray tube monitor, and, you know, you figured out that dryer sheets got rid of static, um, I understand it stands to reason that maybe that's how you could get there. But no, this is not the right way to do it. Um, This is what I used something called whoosh. And um, and it works really well. Oh, put a link to it in there. I'm sure that you probably find some Wish fans. Alexander, your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I always use a soft microfiber cloth to clean my monitors. You just want to make sure you're not using any harsh solvents, and that Wish stuff is awesome. I don't know what they do with that stuff because I've tried a lot of different types of products. I don't know if there's a special sauce in there. But it seems to be good, and the quality of the microfiber cloths that they provide with it are really good. The other thing is with microfiber cloths, they're not all the same. Just make sure you get edgeless microfiber cloths because I made a mistake once using a cloth that had the stitching, the edge to it, and it ended up actually scratching something. Ooh, okay. Forewarned is far on Mitchell. Yeah, I'm uh, showing a microfiber with an edge on it. That's a good point. Um, yeah, definitely don't do uh, uh, dryer sheets uh, unless you want your monitor to be splotchy and smell good. Um, that's a bad idea. Microfiber um, with a little bit of water, don't use Windex on your screen. I know it's easy to think that that works well, but it messes with the coating on most TV screens, especially if it's a flat panel TV. Courtney. 
Yeah, if you're going to use a cleaning solution, the I've used Sprayway, which is a glass cleaner that does not have ammonia in it. That's the main thing you don't want to put on your screens. Uh, and I've used it, uh, I've used Sprayway on our coated glass on teleprompters for many years. And without any detrimental effects, we're still using glass that we made 30 years ago. <clears throat> and I've cleaned it with the Sprayway and lint-free cloths. And we don't use dryer wipes to do them. Uh, chem wipes were used for a while, but uh, we've switched to uh, microfiber cloths to clean them. The kinds that the optician gives you to clean your glasses, the really fine microfiber. Yeah, you never want to hear, I need to clean my computer. Can you find me the nail polish remover? Uh, <laughs> the coatings on these things, just not a good idea to mess with it. So good advice. Next question. Next one in for David Brady in New York, New York. The screen of my M2 MBNA, uh, excuse me, um, um, micro, uh, whatever MacBook the Air. MacBook. Yes, I know it was there somewhere. There you go. Yes. Always picks up all the schmutz from coming in contact with a keyboard. What can be done to mitigate this problem? And what is the best cleaner for the keyboard? Jason Bass, help us out. Uh, I'm going to go with schmutz again. I, it's truly, it really is the best for this kind of thing. Um, I've also found that if I don't eat and then, you know, use my keyboard, that's just, this really helps. <laughs> Computing and pizza consumption together, not, not a good idea. Courtney. Yeah, I use a, a vacuum cleaner, but not a really strong vacuum cleaner. They used to make little mini keyboard vacuums that, uh, you know, wouldn't suck the tops off the keys. You know, when the top comes off the key and it's sucked <laughs> into your vacuum, that's a bad day for you. But uh, you can vacuum it out with a, you could have an attachment on the end that has a screen on it that doesn't allow it to actually suck the keys in. But uh, uh, clean it with a vacuum or dust off. I've used spray spray can dust off, but a lot of times that Freon or whatever the propellant comes out of there and it can kind of stain the keys. So be careful about uh, using the dust off upside down or where the liquid propellant comes out. Yeah, Chris, this is not the time to use your shop vac. You have a comment? Uh, no, well, I agree with um, what Jason said. A lot of time, a lot of times, keeping keeping things clean is more important than cleaning them. And uh, I'm I'm surprised it's even that big. I'll tell you, I don't clean things very often, but when I do, I just go for it. You know, I just, I just. <laughs> yeah, uh, the old Rotary Sanders. <laughs> I'll take Gary right there. Uh, uh, yeah. Let's move on to the next question before we get entirely out of control. We're already out of control. Uh, next question from Tony Mobley in Noonan, Georgia. What is the impact of Filmic Pro laying off their team? Sadness. Uh, Chris Fenwick, your thoughts? I mean, how many days has it been since Blackmagic released their thing? I mean, we called it that day. It's like, oh, this is the end of filming. Absolutely going to be the end of filming. It can't, you can't keep up. You get the weight and power and all of the engineering staff of Blackmagic decides, oh, we're going to do an awesome iPhone app. And it's, and you know what? Does Filmic do things that the Blackmagic thing does uh, that it can't do? Today, yeah. In a in a week, a month, a year, no. Yeah, it's just gonna get better and better. This you know, they got they got Sherlocked and it wasn't even Apple. Courtney? Yeah, the, the impact is there's a lot of new employees available for black magic to to scarf up in Australia. They're such nice people. Uh CJ Cobble. So that was gonna be my that was gonna be my comment, uh as well what Courtney said. I mean everybody to the founder and CEO 
of the original filmic team was laid off by bending spoons so it, it, the whoever was the company that acquired them you would hope that now there's just a a glut of talent in the making video apps for phones that wasn't there two days ago that somebody at black magic or another competing app developer can say hey there's talent out there hopefully these guys land on their feet because it was a really great app do we know how many people it was how many people does it take, take to make filmic? Like two or three people? No, I don't think so. I think they had, well, the, the top two people who've been on the show before, and then uh, I think they had a coding team behind them. Now, whether it was two or three or five or 12, who knows? I want to remind you that 22, back in the 90s, 22 people. 22. 22 people for that phone app? Those guys aren't working hard enough. Randy Ubalos wrote pr the, the original <laughs> premiere by himself. Well, 20 of them are in marketing, you know. That's the oh, okay, there you go. Well, the other part of the puzzle, too, is that um, if they were selling well, and they probably were, I mean, I don't know any, how many, I should say, how many people on this panel have Filmic on their computer somewhere? And it's probably going to be a, a very robust description of the number of people on the panel. I mean, they did a fine product. It was really good. It was really useful. It did what it was supposed to do. It had things you couldn't get anywhere else. But this is a fast-moving business. And apps now, I mean, it's not, a, it's not an amateur um, getting into the app store with a decent product is a way to sustain a career robustly for a long time. There are that that whole distribution model. Boy, do you remember back when the iTunes store first came out and everybody said it was not going to work and it, Napster and the rest of those people, and people would not pay for something? Boy, did they turn out to be wrong because the app store now is a monster and people make huge amounts of money with a really good app and really good support. So it's just a different game than it was back in the early days. Mitchell? Yeah, your comment about uh, iTunes is interesting because people were uh, uh, interviewed and talked about that they didn't mind paying for music. In fact, they would rather pay a reasonable price for a song than to steal it via Napster. So that was the interesting uh, revelation there. It was one of the moments Steve Jobs got things entirely right. If we make this less friction oriented so you don't have to find a you know a fly by night operation pirate bay or something and and be really clued into how to do it and this is someplace everybody can come pay your 99 cents and you get the song you like and sure enough that that turned the tide of an entire industry and has become what we have today next question Michael Reyes from McLean, Virginia. What is the recommended setup for on-site live streaming mobile setup, such as a live streaming from, say, a show like the upcoming CES or the factory floor? What are things to consider? Hotspot, smartphone, portable backpack with a portable NUC? Thanks, guys. Okay, big question. Jeff's going to start us off, and then Guy Cochran. Jeff Keithley. Oh, we're going to have fun with this, guys. Uh, all right, so it depends if you're using a one-way type or maybe a, a slow two-way. Uh, when I, just to define that, one way would be, hey, this is John from the floor. I'm talking about blah, 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 and back to you in the studio. So those kind of situations, uh, live view, Abby West, the high vision uh, version, uh, there's a lot of different bonding cellular solutions out there. That's the way to do it. Multiple points of uh, contact so you can actually break up the video stream and audio streams across multiple cellular providers and then send it out. Uh, just a single hotspot, not going to help you very much. Uh, the next step past that would be a more of an active interview style of two-way like we do here on Office Hours. And that's a different problem uh, or a different challenge. Let's put it that way. 
So you need something that has a fast return, faster than 1.5 seconds. Maybe a, we can get down a live view down to a second, um, which is still manageable and very manageable and still possible to do two-way if you have good talent. Um, but if you don't and you have amateurs or, or people that aren't quite as experienced in the talent world, uh, being able to toss back and forth and have conversational uh, things, that's where a faster, something like WebRTC, like Zoom is doing here, uh, that's where you would want to use like a portable Nook or or some type of computer or interface. Could be a phone, could be a tablet, and have that do your two-way back and forth between a, a, a panel like this or even just one way back and forth with a person. But that is a lot faster. But then you, you throw down the problem of, do I have bonded Ethernet or internet at that point to be able to do it? And uh, that's where the challenge really comes in. Uh, we just recently fought this through multiple levels, came down to the solution was a live view solution, but not a live view pack, a live view LU smart app that was installed on the phone because it bonds on both the phone cellular and also on the cellular puck that we handed off to them, which was an AT&T, their, their cellular was a, a uh, Verizon, I believe, on their phone. And it worked really, really well where they weren't able to get signal out in previous events in the same location. So, um, I mean, there were dropouts, yes. But uh, for the 45 minutes, I believe it was, that we were live from the Tesla Gigafactory, it was pretty rock solid. I mean, like 95% there. Pretty amazing. Nice. Guy Cochran. Oh, no, I wouldn't say 95%, Jeff. It was, there were still some breakups in there. Yeah, we fought this, Jeff and I, last week. We were looking at uh, all the options. Jeff brought along his LU800 uh, backpack and got a chance to look at all the modems in there. I think you had eight in there, Jeff? That's yeah, right. So had... Yeah, that, one, that unit has eight modems in it. So two, actually three from AT&T, three from Verizon, and two from T-Mobile, I believe it was. Yeah, and then you also had the rack mount unit that would receive those back at the yeah. There's additional the equipment involved for sure. Is that how much is that receiver the, at the at our end? Uh, the servers somewhere around seven grand, eight grand, somewhere like that. And then thirty plus for the LU eight hundred eh, ish. Yeah, ish. And you can rent them for how much? Uh, about two thousand a month. Two thousand a month. So there you go. I mean, we we have all the way from just use a phone with you know your your plan to use a phone with another hotspot. So then you're using phone, cellular, plus Wi-Fi. And then it just depends on how long you're going to go for. Because at a CES type event, I've seen people use these little Sony action cams into a live, uh, live view small backpack. So there's the live view solo that's only like 1200 bucks, And you could put, I believe, four modems in that. So that's a pretty inexpensive option. And you know you don't have to worry about focus. The the talent could just wear that backpack or have somebody else wear that backpack and, and still uh, be in front of the camera. So I've seen people like uh, Luria from Livestreaming Pros. She's covered CES this way. And it's a, it's a pretty nice way to, to cruise through a crowd because you're not... Some of these shows are really packed. Like you're, you're like shoulder to shoulder cruising through. Whereas a show like Cinegear, where we had Noah Sargent out there with his, what we call it, the tank, he was able... Uh, to bring in a rolling uh, option with two cameras on it. And I really like that because he had the wide shot and he had the close-up and he was cutting back and forth on, on the fly. So as the um, um, presenter at the booth held up their product or said, hey, look at this small little screen, we were able to punch in and see that. So we were able to show the viewers what we were looking at. And he was using a disaster group uh, modem. That was, I believe, a five modem solution. The bummer about that one is it's only 4G. So you got to be kind of careful. There's... You want to do your research on 4G versus 5G because I've been 
in some venues now with a disaster group where I couldn't get out with the 4G, but with the 5G on my phone, I was able to get a, a more stable system. So you want to be kind of careful about what you're working with. Those are some tips. I mean, we could go on for a long time about this subject because Jeff said, I don't know how deep you guys want to go, but I think we... And we, we have. We've done whole shows on this. So if you want to uh, look back on our archives, uh, IBC, NAB, Cinegear, we've tried for the last year and a half and successfully tried to go out on show floors and do live to the web in real time. And we've learned a lot of lessons. And we always talk about those lessons and talk about what we've discovered that does work and does not work, usually at the postmortem show a few days after we do the live hit. We'll have a whole show and you'll be able to listen to all the people who are in charge of various parts of the technical stack or the production stack or the hosts and whomever talk about what their experience is like for this. So it's it's some material to go back and look up. Uh, once again, we've got a robust group of questions ahead of us, but maybe you'll get lucky with the newest question that you put in in terms of people voting it right up to the top and we'll get to it very quickly. So if you have more questions, we always can look for more. Uh, also, second hour is coming up up in about 15 minutes, and we'll be talking about scope creep, one of the more interesting subjects, at least as far as I'm concerned. Right now, next question. And the next question is another QR code question from George Ha in Talent, Oregon. Uh, can you describe several different situations where the use of noise assist can help the audio? Courtney, start us off. Well, as far as I'm concerned, there's only one situation where noise assist should be used to help the audio, and that's in a live streaming situation where you have background noise and you want to implement it. If you're recording something, I usually try and record everything dry without any uh, filtration or any type of uh, anything that would affect the sound permanently that can't be undone. And noise, noise assist and uh, any kind of noise removal is one of those things. Uh, so I, I prefer to use the tools in post if you're recording something because once you uh, tune it the way you think it's good and then you go back home and you listen to it on a big set of speakers, it may be creating more artifacts or affecting your usable audio more than you'd really like and you can't undo it if it's in a recording. So if it's in a live situation, sure, it'll improve your audio. Uh, you know, it's going to, you may sacrifice a little, a little bit of your uh uh, frequency response or your dynamic range to the noise assist, but uh, uh, it'll help uh, get rid of the distractions behind you and around you. Chris Fenwick. Mark this day in your calendar, Courtney and I almost completely agree. Um, uh, it, it, definitely true. Th there is one thing, George, that you can do. I totally agree with Courtney. If you're, if you're posting something, just do it in post. Um, but there is one trick that you can do in a mix pre with noise assist. If you have multiple mics and one instance of noise assist, and I think that you can, on some of the devices, you can now have two channels of it. But what they recommend that you do is you do a straight uh, mix. A it's essentially, it's going to be a mono mix. It's going to be two monos, center pan, everybody. And you can apply the noise assist plugin on one of the two channels. So essentially what you'll get is you'll get a completely clean feed on, say, the left channel and a noise assisted, although it's, it's noise assisting all your mixed mics on the other channel. Now, if you have a really quick turnaround and you don't have a lot of time to, like, diddle something and make it, like, really perfect, that might be super advantageous. But the premise of your question is uh, describe several different situations. I don't think there are. The primary one is if you're streaming, if you're doing something live in an area with problematic noise, like for example, I have 
hard drives and fans all around me. Sounds pretty good. Uh, um, if, but if you're doing something live, that's the, the primary place you're going to uh, have an advantage. Guy Cochran. Yeah, like these guys said, live is where it's at. Um, just to hear what it sounds like is a difference. Here's um, my room at zero. And then let's walk it up. It's negative six, negative eight. Negative 12 inches all goes away. You've destroyed that cricket outside, though. <laughs> yeah, so that's the thing is I've seen fast turn folks who also want to use uh, noise assist where they're just like, yeah, go ahead and bang it on there because we're just turning this around today. And so there was no time in, in audio to sweeten it up. It was just going to go straight, straight some hard cuts and boom, it was out the door. So, uh, yeah, noise assist or Cedar DNS is uh, the tools that you would use for that. Yeah, um, I have Cedar on right now in my chain, and it, it's interesting. You know, I record uh, audiobooks as well, and when I do audiobook work, I have nothing in my chain at all. I mean, it's literally completely dry. There's not an effect at all. It's microphone directly into the digital recording system. Uh, when I'm doing that, and I go back and I apply even filters, even some of the plugins that I use for that. Like there's deep breath and some things like. You don't want to kind of sound between uh, heavy dialogue with something that's like they're running through the park or something. Um, I can hear tiny differences, affected and non-affected. So even when you think it sounds pretty clear, people with good ears can say, oh, there's something a little bit notched out of the frequency response, something like that. So try to use as little as possible. But, yeah, I agree. It, this is for live. If you can get away with it, always record uh, your dry feed, we used to call it that in the days of reverb. Just don't put any effects on it, just straight to digital storage, and then put your effects on afterwards. Let's go to the next question. C.J. Cavell from Downeytown, Pennsylvania, and right here on our panel. NFL broadcasts deal with varying degrees of downpour. Other than some droplets on the lens, everything proceeded as normal, even the drone shots. What considerations and preparations are taken to make sure the show goes on? We have Jeff Keithley with us, who's been in this situation a good little bit. Jeff, start us off. Having done a few, uh, a lot yeah. of outdoor events. Um, so live sports was a big part of our business. And uh, doing outdoor events, you basically don't prepare. If it's going to rain, you just prepare for when it's going to rain. Because invariably, something's going to happen if you're outdoors. It's, it's just a matter of percentages. It's just going to happen. So most camera operators that are decent camera operators that are full-time this is what they do will be prepared with their backpack they will have rain slicks they will have uh or frog togs whatever they're comfortable in then at the same time they're also going to have microfiber cloths that and lens cleaners themselves you don't have to call for a pa to bring something to you they will take care of it themselves and that's pretty much about being prepared i mean everything else that we do is is always thought of it's covered, it's it's in a case or, or some type of structure that is going to keep water away from the connectors, going to keep things dry. Um, anything that can be fouled by water getting into it that's electronic is going to be in a case that's going to be protected or tarped or or covered. Um, just last week, we, we had this same situation, and it's like it was going to be a um, an outdoor beautiful thing in Austin. And I'm like, Texas? I'm like, yeah, it's going to rain. And sure enough, it did. And it rained that day uh, till showtime. And then about an hour or so into the seven-hour broadcast we were at. So um, 
you just have to be prepared for it. Um, I will say that though many are prepared, I have watched NFL specifically um, mess that up too. Uh, operators, I saw a sky cam go for at least a half before they dropped it and just wiped the lens off. It doesn't have an automatically wiper, and that irritated me to no end. I was like, it literally can reach the ground anywhere pretty much in the whole place. Why don't you just drop it down at a commercial break? And to me, that's a director. That's a problem with the director. That that they should have said, okay, take time out. I can lose it for two minutes to be able to do that. It should have been cleaned. Um, there was a high wide shot, a hero shot that was also the same way. Like, dude, wipe your lens. There, there's a certain point that you just have to do it. So uh, that's that's just part of dealing with things and outdoor fun. Chris Fenwick. Uh, interesting uh, about the, the sky cam. I want to say, uh, I don't think you mentioned the drones, Jeff. And I, I, I don't. There's a YouTube channel I've been watching lately. It's called The Story Till Now. The and it's a it's a guy who his name is Sean. He takes his Jeep out into the wilderness and he does all of this stuff by himself and he flies a drone while he drives his four-wheel drive Jeep through amazing mountain mountain passes through the woods. Sometimes he has high shots looking down as his Jeep meanders through the trees. Sometimes the, the drone is in front of him as he's driving. And he's flying the dr- drone and driving. That's amazing in and of itself. But what's really amazing is the amount of time he does it in heavy rain and heavy snow. And I just... I have no I have no answer as to how the drone survives it but if you want to see some amazing and really beautiful drone work it's called the story till now and go check out some of his work it's truly amazing nice courtney yeah, i would think larger drones might be able to do it smaller drones heavy downpour is a big problem for them and they're not really uh, very waterproof uh as far as uh camera gear uh, and you know just when you think you know a lot of people the way they will uh prepare for rain will oh we got a pop up in the back of the camera truck let's just bring that out and pop it up no <laughs> well soon as the wind comes up there goes the pop-up look what's that in the shot oh that's the pop-up that blew away over camera too uh so you got to be careful you got to carry lots of sandbags if you're going to have any type of umbrella or coverage umbrellas and a wind will usually turn inside out and leave you in the rain so don't depend on any of that stuff uh to keep you dry a lot of people have uh, rain jackets for the cameras uh, that are designed to go over your specific camera uh, that's getting harder and harder to do because back in the day, cameras had a certain shape. And nowadays you piece it together with all the little gugas and transmitters and monitors where you like them. And uh, a, a pre-fitted rain jacket for a camera may not fit over it anymore. And then, of course, you got to keep the surface of the lens clean and usually putting on a, a UV filter or something just to protect the coatings in the front of the lens. And then uh, soft fiber cloth to wipe it off every now and then. There are rain Rain deflectors, which can go in front of a lens, which have a spinning piece of glass that will deflect any water. And this is used on uh, Deadliest Catch and those kind of shows where they have, you know, salt spray constantly uh, to get rid of the water. Um, but those are the ways that you can protect mostly against it. But be be forewarned, too, that if you've got a, 
a uh, one of those cameras that has an overheat problem, you put them in a rain jacket, it's going to increase the problem of it overheating. CJ. Yeah, and it, all it was really for me, I've I've been on shoots in the rain, I've been on shoots in the snow. Uh I was really impressed when I was, you know, 10 miles or 20 miles from the stadium knowing how hard it was raining and then I see a drone shot that was clearly not uh, done earlier in the day, like the players were on the field. It's been raining the entire time. Just you know, all the all the credit in the world to the guys who are uh, the guys and girls who are you know tough in the elements. <laughs> Absolutely hard work out there when it's snowing in an NFL game. Uh, let's get to the next question. And it's a QR code question from Tim McMillan in Poughkeepsie, New York. Would you recommend getting two Dell twenty-seven inch four K monitors or one Apple Studio display for an M two Mac Mini? We don't normally handle religious questions, but the multiple monitor question is acceptable. Chris Fenwick, start us off. Um, it really depends, Tim. I mean, what is your what is your work now? The studio display, I believe, is a five K display, or is that or is the studio the six K? Oh, it's a five. Uh, is that the five? Okay, so I mean, there's it, the pixel count is you know similar. Um, I always have two two displays on my computers because that's just the way I work. I like to spread things out. Uh, if you have to, you know, tab between apps, that might slow you down. Or if you're working on something that's really complicated and you have a lot of menus and stuff on a second display, it really depends. Um, I will say that as an editor who edits, you know, 4K footage a lot, um, I want a 5K display minimum because I can I can edit a timeline and view my content uh, without shrinking the pixels uh, on a 5K display, and you can't do that on a 4K display. Jason Bache. Yeah, this comes down to this fallacy that more is better. Um, more is more, not not necessarily better. If I do what Fenwick did all day. Two 27-inch displays, there's no substitute for it straight away because anyone who's ever used Final Cut, you got to spread your stuff out. If you are every single day, you know, just looking forward, having two 27-inch displays is actually really annoying because you have to you have to look back and forth and you don't actually have a setter channel. So at the end of the day, um, the Apple one is really expensive, but Oh, boy, do I like it. But if I did what Fenwick did, um, yeah, 27s all day. There you go. It is time to make our transition here. Uh, very close. I wanted to note some of the things coming up this week on the show. Uh, tomorrow, December the 5th, uh, we're going to do an app, a lab on Apple Motion Lower Thirds. I'm pretty sure Alex uh, is going to be here and show us how he creates. Oh, and not only that, but Alex Golner, our friend from London, will be here to take us through the process of creating lower thirds. I, I love watching uh, Alex work. And if you want to learn about both the aesthetics and the techniques of building lower thirds. Tomorrow's going to be a very good day here on Office Hours. Wednesday, the 6th of December, recording a podcast. Alex is going to walk us through the process used to record the Gray Matter show that he's been doing with Michael Krasny for a while. So if you're interested in podcasting and that sort of thing, uh, Wednesday is your day. Thursday, December 7th, we're going to be looking at the Blackmagic Design camera app. We're going to take a closer look at uh, the new iOS camera app. It's become very popular. Uh, sad that's part of what... Uh, gave our friends with the other competing camera apps some difficulties, but it, it splashed onto the scene 
And a lot of people are using it to kind of up the capabilities of their iPhone cameras, which, of course, are very popular. And then Friday, streaming to multiple locations. Office Hours is going to begin to stream to more than one YouTube channel. And so we're going to talk through the options and how that is all working. Those are things coming up as we get closer. Of course, in our second hour here, in just a few seconds, we're going to be talking about scope creep. And so I'm going to leave the rest of that. Don't forget... uh, Your questions every day drive things here at Office Hours. And with the QR codes that you've seen before, you can put them in any time. So put your questions in. We'll be right back in just a second to start a second hour. Welcome back to our second hour. It's great to have you here. We are talking scope creep today. And I can't remember the first time I heard the word scope creep, but I immediately started resonating uh, with the idea. And basically... Overall, you have a project. The project has come to you. You can be in the beginning of your career, the middle, or you could be a substantial uh, operator with huge budgets and things like that. Scope creep affects everybody. And basically, it's the idea of you have a shape for the project, a, a size, a budget, a number of crew people you need, whatever, that you think at the beginning when the project is described to you is going to take care of it. But it is super common for that to change over time. So when they told you, okay, we're going to need two cameras and we're going to have six days of shooting, you get into the middle of things and all of a sudden your client starts coming to you, you go, you know, could we could we add a third person or a fourth person or, or three more people to this? And so the scope creep just keeps increasing over the course of time. And things get bigger and bigger. It happens on all level of production. And so we're going to have a discussion of this today. How do you manage it? How do you get into the discussion of the scope of this project has moved so dramatically from where it was that we really have to sit down and talk about the money involved? I mean, that is a that is one of the more delicate things that you have to deal with because everybody supposedly agreed to a budget beforehand. And now maybe I've seen circumstances where it's two, three, four times. I'll never forget one of the most amazing moments in my career. I was working on a project and I had bid on it. And I thought I can probably sneak these three little videos out. And so I came and I sat and we gave him the number that we thought. And somebody on the other side of the desk looked to me and said, each. And I went, yes. <laughs> I probably tried not to do that. But I didn't understand the scope at all. I was thinking that I could do all three projects in this overall amount. And they were thinking, no, that is a budget for each one of the projects. We just had a complete disconnect by the scope of what their expectations were and the scope of the project. So all these things are possible in your career as you go through this. Um, we're going to allow a little time here. I see Craig is into the uh, panel, hadn't been here before. Good good to see you, Craig. How are you today? I'm I'm good and uh, excited to talk about this. You know, scope creep can just crush whether it's an individual or a company service. Uh, if you don't have a way of uh, seeing scope creep happening, uh, it can just crush any sort of profit whatsoever and uh, uh, drop customer sat down to zero. Um, yeah, we've seen it so many it. times. Uh, two people on two different sides of this, and the client just going. 
hey, can you do this? Can we add this? And they're in their field and they're excited and they're starting to see things come together. So they just keep asking for more and more and more. And if you keep saying yes to more and more and more, suddenly your margins get smaller and smaller and smaller. And we've seen it happen where the margins get to zero into negative numbers. And that is not good for anybody in a business relationship. CJ, you wanted to talk a little bit about Scope Creek before we get uh, into the questions? so much of this, uh, so much to me, of navigating the issue of scope creep is also navigating client relationships because at the end of the day, most of us aren't trying to, especially in the kind of work that we're doing, whether it's we're manufacturing something, we're creating a video, we're going, we're entering into an ongoing relationship of some kind, we want the repeat business. So the perception and the, the perception of expectations being met of the customer on the other end of the scenario or, or the other end of the situation is going to determine, am I getting jobs number two, three, four, and five? And, the, you know, it's a very, there's a very artful way to uh, to go about this whole thing. So I'm, I'm excited that we're having this discussion as well. I, I think it's a very important discussion. And if your goal is to grow your business past where it is now and get up to the next levels, this becomes more and more critical as you go. Because I think we've all been in circumstances where your budgets are now much bigger than they used to be, but you're not making anywhere near as much money. And it is in part because you're not managing the the difference between deploying a project at this scale and now you're deploying one that's twice as big and you've had to go out and buy things and you're you're getting more additional services you're probably increasing your labor costs and everything and before you know it you're upside down on that i also see rod and Raymond here good to see you uh do you have any initial thoughts about the idea of scope creep ryan morning bill Uh, Absolutely something that I am dealing with day in and day out. And so in terms of a couple things that I might share with the group to get our conversation started might just be, you know, throwing out some of the different uh, sub industries or niches that big projects exist in and that scope creep might apply to because I think this will get the gears turning for those that are watching in terms of questions that they might want to ask. So You know, CJ, of course, works in kind of manufacturing and kind of an engineer to order capacity. And so every order and every job that they're running through the shop floor can be a little bit different and can tend to change between the point in time where uh, an initial kind of order is placed and and when the actual project is complete. Uh, Craig and I work in a pretty similar capacity in technology implementations and something, you know, that I think would be an interesting topic of conversation is you know, the prevalence of scope creep in small projects and how it affects small projects and the prevalence in bigger and longer projects and how it affects things there. Um, And then Mark is with us today as well from an architecture and engineering and construction perspective. And of course, uh, scope creep exists in that that realm. And then we've got kind of the, the broader group that's of course really experienced in the virtual production uh, realm. And so scope creep certainly applies to all of these areas. And, you know, I'll remind the group too of our Monday kind of uh, first Monday of the month PM series that this is a part of, um, you know, we've, we've broken that down to talk about project management tools. We've talked about scoping a project. We've talked about bidding and estimating a project. And so scope creep comes hand in hand into that. And just to, you know, kind of throw out there, one of the biggest problems is, you know, kind of who is going to pay for the additional scope and how is that going to to affect things? So um, those are some of the bits that I wanted to get out there for folks to be considering this morning. 
so much to think about and talk about and it's so important because you can't cons- you know you, you can't survive if you can't manage this particular aspect because it can really bite you in the foot so easily. Mark Giuliani, give us some your thoughts about this. My experience has been that scope creep occurs when there's a lack of project definition or it's misunderstood, when the stakeholders haven't been involved to say, this is our experience in the field, this is what thing, how things generally occur and what we need to be different about what's on the original plans for architecture. And also when there's just no way to really measure what the original project definition was. And that's mainly, you just have to constantly weekly check up on schedules and check up on budgets and see what's getting out of hand. Yeah, projects are kind of living things. They really do change. And I I don't think I've ever been involved in any project that looked anything like the initial meeting when it got finally to the end. I mean, there may be professionals who, who really do manage that perfectly and and what was initially decided turns out to be what's executed through the course of the job uh, history. But I, I, in my experience, more often than not, what we're talking about today occurs. CJ, you have more thoughts? I think it all starts with uh, really good discovery practices. Uh, regard, when you are in a specific vertical and you know your business and you know the kinds of projects that you're getting into, you're going to by default ask a very similar set of questions regardless of what the project is. You don't want to be so rigid and so over-formalized that it feels like the, the client feels like you're just a cookie cutter going in there. So you're going to have to get your basic set of requirements. Again, it's going to differ depending on what vertical you're in. But then you're going to have to go through and really try to tease out of the person on the other side of the table, what are you really trying to achieve uh, with a certain project so that you can come back with a proposal that is within uh, the w- that's within the realm of what you're looking to it the, the amount of work that you're trying to put in uh, in at this particular time in terms of your personal bandwidth, but also uh, one step further is addressing their needs. And there's and there, again, that's a balance. You're trying to make sure that the client's expectations are satisfied. Uh, but you're not putting yourself way over the top in terms of how much workload you're able to take on. Absolutely. Mitchell, you had some thoughts on this? Yeah, what CJ just said about managing expectations. I think scope creep is a big part of that because you have to evaluate the client, particularly one you haven't worked with before, how much they know about the business uh, that we're getting ready to conduct together. If they seem like they're a little uh, new to it, you're going to have scope creep big time because it's your job to communicate as well as you can what is involved in doing the job. And you also have to find the pitfalls. So you might be a little bit of a buzzkill when you're talking to a client about their grandiose dreams, the things that they want to do. But as I remind clients sometimes, we're not producing Ben-Hur here. Uh, we're doing a uh, uh, you know corporate uh, production uh, about widgets or something. And you have to anticipate that. So if you're good as the producer, uh, you're going to be able to tell the client, here are the pitfalls, here are the problems, and uh, here's what to look out for as you go along. And you have to be very diplomatic about it. One of the things I find very hard uh, is to always say yes. When the client says, can you do that? Yes. I mean, I don't even think twice about it uh, because there's going to be a consequence of that yes. But you immediately have to follow up with some type of documentation. And as long as those lines of communication are well open, uh, there can be scope creep, but there's not going to be a problem after the bill goes out. 
and the perception of professionalism and the and the integrity of you as a business person is maintained when you tell them the truth, even when it's not what they want to hear. When you say, yes, we could do that, but this is how much it's going to cost, and then really level with them on, is it worth it? Is there a, a real return on investment for going down this road for what you're trying to achieve? Uh, and if the answer is no, they're going to be happy that you led them down the right path. Yeah, many times you have to make it seem as like them think that they asked that question or made that point. Um, and you have to be very careful how you do that. I'm very excited to hear that you want that. But <laughs> uh, Alexander. All really great points. But Mitch's point, too, about when you have a client that doesn't understand software development, this scope creep becomes an even bigger problem. I experienced this in the past with the previous company I worked for when we were developing apps for people and ultimately the client wants what they want, right? And it becomes a problem when they don't understand what happens is it seems trivial for them. Why can't you just add this feature? But then there's like a trickle down effect and while, yeah, there's a lot of testing involved, this could break other things. And I love the point about always try to say yes. It's just about managing expectations and you can't do everything in one release with software development. So there's a lot of planning involved. Jason, you want to weigh in? Yeah, I would say always say yes and. Uh, at, at the end of the day, uh, this this is a frequent thing for me. I take existing technologies and I wed them together. And when people see what's possible, they get very excited. Always, every single time. And that is a good thing. It's just absolutely critical that they understand um, that these things you didn't know existed five minutes ago are, are not going to cost what you thought that they did 10 minutes before that. Yeah, I think literally everybody on the panel has had to deal with this. And I'm kind of interested in maybe going around and talking a little bit about when you've realized that a client's scope has gotten to the point where you cannot execute on the original uh, agreement in terms of costs and things like that. Are there techniques you use to bring up the discussion and make it as palatable as possible when you know that's going to be a sticking point? I mean, sometimes I've had clients, and, and thank you to past clients, who were just fine. You know, they're, they're happy to talk about increased budget when you have increased work. Others are more resistant to that. And in the circumstances where they go, oh, gosh, I didn't realize it's going to be that much. Are there any techniques you use? And Ryan has raised a hand here. So, Ryan, dive in. Timing is everything. So what the really important part here is, I mean, and I think I think Mitchell brought this up. If you agree to this thing or you proceed with the particular asker requirement, you finish the project, get time to kind of uh, wrap up billing, realize there was an overage that resulted from this, and then bring up the scope creep that maybe took place one month ago, three months ago, six months ago, and are looking to be compensated for it, that could be really challenging for the client. You really don't know what circumstances they're dealing with, right? They have a budget and, you know, no matter whether they're the owner of the company or a mid-level manager, there's budgeting that takes place at a corporate level. And if these projects are, are big projects, they could be really consequential to the financial health of the business. And every single day, a client is exchanging emails with me or with another project manager about different details of the project. You know, we're asking them for clarification about whether they want to go down path A or B, whether they want, you know, um, you know, this color or that color in, in, in something. And so it's not always obvious and we cannot make assumptions 
that a client understands that there are scope and or budget implications to a particular ask or decision that they're making. And so bringing that up as early as possible and making clear what that budget impact is, has, you know, all the difference in the world in terms of client satisfaction and pain that might be inflicted upon uh, your portion of the budget management or, or their portion of their their project budget management and their departmental budget manage, management. A lot of people want to weigh into this. Jason. Codify it. Codify it quickly and update that codification as quickly as the thing you talk about, which in some in some cases means codify it before you pitch it and say, okay, well, here's how that same thing looks. I use my node for this. Here's what that same thing looks like with what we just talked about. And here are the associated costs. You have to understand your business. It is incumbent upon you if you get somebody excited to, to be willing to and able to very quickly explain what it means in dollars and cents. Yeah, I think and often the statement of work, scope of work, whatever you want to call it, uh, maybe addresses how you bring some of these things up. But Mark Giuliani. Well, no project ever ends the same way that it starts. There's always a progress of changes that go along, whether it's a change that was for unforeseen circumstances or a change that the client just decided they needed to have halfway through the project. So we found that having progress meetings where you keep the stakeholders and those for the client that have decision-making process involved, then you get to have them help make the decision. We can do this. It's going to add X number of days to the project. It's going to add X amount of money to the project. Or we could take away from somewhere else and try and balance the project. And I think those are tools that we've used successfully to keep clients happy. Yeah, and I think Mark uh, noted that the earlier you do that, the more time you give your reports or whoever is holding the purse strings a chance to vet it up the line and maybe get you an okay. Uh, Mitchell. Sometimes the scope creep has happened even before the job is agreed upon. Um, I love it when I get RFPs and I put a lot of effort into covering every eventuality and sometimes things that weren't asked for. Um, and I get grief back sometimes from the client. You just have to suck it up and do, deal with the fact that that's the nature of the beast and that's what you're going to have to deal with. The other thing that I've done is I've tried to be very studious about documenting um, changes that are made by the client and um, and then end up failing because when I presented the client with the evidence of the uh, the, the creep that happened, um, they don't like it. They don't like having their nose rubbed in it. So you have to be very diplomatic on how you do that. But the best place to find out where the client is coming from is when you do an RFP and it's thorough and you're asking questions that they didn't even bring up in their uh, request, um, then you're going to find out real fast what kind of relationship you're going to have. Craig. Sorry, it'll still coming off mute. Um, yeah, and I think part of it depends. So for us, we do fixed fee engagements. Um, if you're doing time materials, it's different because then if there's scope creep that actually increases the number of hours and you're billing hour by hour, they're going to see that and, and you need to be able to guide them on, hey, the total is going to be different. Uh, if it's fixed fee, then it's really up to us to make that decision of, hey, do we have this conversation? I'm a fan of doing $0 change orders because we might be well ahead from a cost standpoint on a particular project. And, and to keep the customer happy, you know, as others have said here, sometimes it's easier to say, yep, we'll do that. No, no worries. Uh, customer gets very excited that uh, we're doing lots of stuff 
and they think that it's scope creep and it, and it is, but if we're ahead of the game uh, and we know our business well, which we do, uh, we can do some of those. Otherwise, you know, we rely a lot on uh, putting all the assumptions that impact scope into the uh, statement of work ahead of time so that we can have those uncomfortable conversations at the very beginning when we're negotiating the sale rather than later on debating what the intent of the project was. Uh, there's nothing better than having enough margin so you can say yes and knowing that you're still going to be okay. CJ. And it should go without saying, but make sure that whatever your uh, whatever your change change order policy is or whatever way that you're, somebody is going to get an additional bill later on, set that expectation right from the get-go of what does it look like? When are you going to get an additional bill from me? What are the situations that are going to incur extra fees? And then it's nice when you have the margin to let a couple of things slide that really aren't that big of an impact because that's going to you know build some rapport with the client and it's going to make it a hurt a little less when they do make a big ask and you say, hey, well, this is going to cost more money. The other thing I can't uh, add you know, enough kudos to is what Mark said is that when it's a time thing, when you're going to add additional time to a project and the deadlines change and the timelines change, letting everybody know about that as soon as possible gives them the reaction time and the runway to adjust all of their other decision making so that everything's going to land at once. When you're working in construction materials and, hey, something's happening at the Panama Canal, so the steel that was going to get here last month isn't getting here until next month, okay, if I tell that person eight weeks ahead of the time when they were expecting their materials to get delivered to their job site, they have the ability to say, all right, I'm going to work on a different job then. I'm going to rearrange my labor. If it's two days beforehand and labor's allocated, and they've got equipment rented, and they've done their whole schedule around it, and then they find out, oh, that's not going to get there, then you've got an upset customer. So the more transparency you can give someone with timelines, the more they're able to react and be a, be a partner as opposed to just being, you know, a lot of hand-wringing. Jason, final word before we get into our questions. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the first thing I say straight away and maintain throughout the course of a project is it is my job to give you as much or more than what you're paying for. And you need to trust that I will do that at every at every turn, every step of the way. Um, and if you can demonstrate and say when you are doing that, this is not in the scope, but here it is. Um, it, it's a lot easier for them to recognize that that if there's more, then they're going to pay more. Let's dive into our questions. We have a good group and growing. So, Mitch, first question. Here's the first one for the second hour. Alex Alexander Knight of Port Coquitlam, British Columbia, Canada, asks, we often think of scope creep with respect to projects as they pertain to dealing with clients or work-related projects. What about personal projects you're doing around the house, and how do you manage your own scope creep? Mitchell, you want to weigh in on this? Yeah, I'm so glad that glad that Alexander brought that question up because not only does it affect my business, but it does affect my uh, my personal stuff. I can't help myself is essentially the answer to the question. I cannot help myself. I'm genetically predisposed to do the very best job I can. And when a client says, "Well, we need to cut 20% off," I can't say 20% of creativity off the top of the production. It's very, very hard. So I am my own worst enemy. So it's good of you to bring up that question because uh, it is something you have to grasp, uh, 
grapple with all the time. And my partners uh, will always be pointing the finger at me when they say, you put way too much work into that job, more so than it deserved, and uh, we're not getting paid for it. Jason? You know, um, coming from somebody who, 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 you know, loves doing this stuff and then comes into office hours with a room that looks like this, I have absolutely no idea what you're talking about, okay? There's no such thing as personal scope creep. No, um, everyone here loves overdoing stuff. And, and um, if you like it and you could afford it, do it. CJ? I just, it, I look around the room I'm sitting in and where I was two months ago. Uh, trying to get into office hours. I'm like, wait a minute. Yes, this things escalated very quickly. Um, you've got a <laughs> you, the you story really... of office hours participation. <laughs> but the the biggest thing is, as long as you're, uh, as long as you've still got lunch money, you've still got rent money, and you're you haven't compromised every other relationship because you've just sunk so much time into it. Time is very. Uh, Time's very interesting because you can lie to yourself and how much your time is worth. And you say, oh, I'm just going to spend an hour down there and then an hour is three hours. Or I'm just going to spend a half a day down there and then it's your whole weekend. You've got to take a step back and say, wow, okay, do I need to walk away and you know make sure I'm taking my wife out to dinner and not <laughs> forsaking those relationships? Guy Cochran. Yeah, I think the word is triage. You know, sometimes you just got to back up and what I'll do is just take a piece of paper and just write down pros and cons and draw a line down the middle and just say, what's most important? So it's keep the main thing, the main thing. That's what goes through my head is just, are you keeping the main thing, the main thing? Because it's easy to get distracted, go down the rabbit hole, do something that's easy. But if you remind yourself, keep the main thing, the main thing, and then allocate time for those, those smaller things to catch up if you want or go explore, but keep the main thing, the main thing. Yeah, I have to admit the creative part of it is what used to snap me a lot because I'd get involved with a production and I suddenly they'd bring up an idea and I go, oh, that would be fabulous. And I think I know how to do that. And the next thing you know, you're just you want to run down that path because it's a personal goal to learn more about you know, the possibility of doing something unusual, something creative. But that's when I used to get in trouble with not thinking, oh, you know, they just think it's a good idea. I see all sorts of possibilities and maybe hours of work. And you have to pay attention to the business side of things, too. Sometimes just because you love it, you shouldn't give it to them because it's going to hurt you in the bottom line. Mitchell, real quick, and then CJ, and then we'll move on. Bill, no bucks, no buck Rogers. Um, the, uh, the, the thing my partner makes me do is he makes me write down the time I spend on everything I do. And if I want to go off on a little flight of fantasy because I want to put more production into the uh, the graphic, um, when it's all said and done, um, we have a, uh, um, a special meeting where we decide whether or not we move the needle. And occasionally I get the finger pointed at me for that reason. It's like, you put way too much time that we couldn't charge for uh, on this particular project. It's a good exercise. Yeah. CJ. And if you're unsure on the amount of time that something's going to take, remember the cost of saying yes. The less sure you are of exactly how to do something, the less accurate your time estimate is going to be. So if you think, I think I can do that in an hour, budget two hours. If, you, if you've done it a million times, then, you know, you can budget, you know, maybe only 50% more. But if you're really just doing a shot in the dark, just assume one hour is four and you'll get yourself in less trouble. Let's go to the next question. Next one from Douglas Carmichael. How do you diplomatically rein in a client when the project they propose is getting out of control? Mark, help us out. 
It's it's the back to the progress meetings. You have a meeting once a week. You keep the clients uh, reps involved in it. You let them know what's going on and how it's going to impact the schedule and the budget. And then we have a whole different set of meetings with just the consultants and the team where the sausage gets made, where everything gets down to the nitty gritty. Those are fast, quick meetings to keep people moving. Ryan? The other thing that I like to do from a proactivity standpoint is try to proactively price before a project gets started and before some of these additional add-ons might come up. You know, price those in advance, throw those out there. So if you're putting together a proposal that talks about a project with a fixed duration and a fixed scope, it's actually really easy to put into the proposal what the cost of additional weeks are uh, going to be. And so then to the extent that a particular ask um, or scope expansion causes a timeline extension, uh, there there isn't any frustration about what it is that that's going to add to the budget because it was pretty well pre-established. Sounds like good advice. Mitchell? Uh, diplomacy, something that doesn't live in my uh, uh, wheelhouse often. But uh, I'll tell you what what happens, at least for me and my uh, my business partners, has been some of us do a better job of relating to a client for a multitude of reasons. It might be your personality. Maybe they don't like it to be brutally honest all the time. Um, it, in, in a project that you take on, it's good to identify which of your partners are better suited to deal with that person. And when you find that good match, you got a good client that you're going to be able to stay with. Um, if you're oil and water, um, you need to make an adjustment real fast. Yeah, you know, it's really interesting you say that. Very quickly aside, when my wife and I started pitching 30 years ago when we were first going into business, we would know, we talked about this once, we'd know in the first 30 seconds whether the person on the other side of the desk, whether a male or female decision maker would want to work with either me or Linda. It's it's a combination of eye contact and things like that. And whichever we figured out, the other person would step back. I can't tell you how many how our closing rate went up higher based on that. Sometimes it's just chemistry and things like that. These are all the little subtle arts of uh, a business that sometimes mean more than you think. Let's go to the next question. From John Snyder in Reno, Nevada, uh, there's an ongoing debate in agile project management as to whether scope creep can be even possible in agile since scope is defined every sprint. What do you think? Interesting. Ryan. I think this is a common misconception. I think, you know, the majority of projects uh, that are software oriented are man, uh, managed in an agile uh, methodology, but yet there are still very important timelines. The part that to me is most interesting or important here is the fact that we need to get live. Part of the benefit of agile is being able to set a, a date or a time frame in which we're going to actually be able to realize business value. And so there at that same time are a set of MVP requirements. What's the minimum viable product that we need to actually be able to turn this thing on and allow the end users to start to experience the benefits, right? The idea if we're implementing a new piece of software generally is that the one that we're on today, either right, that the software doesn't exist and we don't have these capabilities or it's antiquated. Well, if we continue to allow for certain um, functionality to become an MVP requirement that we cannot go live without, we might have taken what was a six or eight month period of time between when we started and wanted to let these users, you know, into their new uh, environment and doubled or tripled that amount of time because we were not being diligent about scope creep. Nice. Jason. 
Ryan's absolutely right. Uh, Agile is is based on, you know, these principles and and the whole concept is rapid iteration, um, you know, as as a solution to um, to this kind of problem. It doesn't really matter which camp scope creep gets labeled into. The idea is the process starts with a locked definition. So it, it doesn't really matter whether or not people are, are, are going to try to mess with that, it gets caught up into the next iteration. So no, it, to me, it's, it's kind of a, a false dichotomy. Craig? Yeah, I'd agree. You know, I think one of the benefits of uh, uh, Agile is that you're not defining it all uh, up front. And so in many ways, uh, there's a lot of scope that's avoided by uh, having to design and build stuff that you're actually not going to implement because by the time you build it, you realize, oh, we don't need that feature. We don't need this extra bit. Um, and I always equate agile as like navigating through a big jungle. If you have to map uh, your path through the jungle ahead of time before you get into it, well, then you get into it and you realize, oh, there's a river there. There's a volcano over there. You, you know, you have to navigate through. And so the original plan goes out the window, whereas agile is well, we're going to go a mile in and then reconnoiter and, you know, figure out the best path at that point. Um, so overall, I'd say agile for those sort of projects um, saves a lot of scope uh, from wasted, uh, you know, a typical waterfall approach. CJ. There's also diminishing returns uh, in your level of effort towards a particular goal in the big picture of the whole project. If I'm going to I might spend, uh, you know, X effort to get to 95% and I need to spend X effort to get from 95% to 100%. At some point there, you know, it, it, the project's never done. You just run out of time. So you've got you've to take a step back and, and realize, okay, what am I able to achieve with the resources that I'm given and still have enough to get all my other goals accomplished? So that's the other danger when you're constantly reevaluating uh, you know, don't move your goalposts too much. You've got to keep the keep the the end goal of the bigger the the project as a whole in mind. Next question, Alexander Knight in Port Coquitlam, British Columbia, Canada, and right here in our panel. How do you handle a difficult client that wants you to stop everything you're doing to make a change to a feature? And how do you balance professionalism with being realistic about how things work? Craig, start us off. Yeah, so you know, I personally take a lot of comfort on uh, things where there is a reality out there. And so you can't, you know, the whole having a baby uh, with nine women in, in a month kind of thing. There's a reality that you can ask all you want, but it's not going to happen. And, and I think a lot of people get super stressed thinking, how am I going to deal with this? Uh, but reality can be your friend sometimes and, and just showing them uh, diplomatically that, Hey, this isn't possible with the resources that we have lined up or with the budget and whatnot. Um, and I'd also say that uh, a lot more transparency uh, works really well. So having those uncomfortable conversations w early on when they're just, uh, oh, by the way, we see this thing coming. It's very easy to have. By the, if you wait and wait and wait, it becomes an even harder, more uncomfortable conversation. So earlier on, the better. Mitchell. Another great question, by the way. Uh, thanks, Alexander. Um, yeah, doing a, doing a job with a client where you're dealing with uh, that scope creep, 
every job, pretty much, the client falls in love with some idea that they have. Oh, by the way, this would be cool if we do this. And then you have to evaluate whether you can or cannot do it. I'll, I'll make this story real quick. Um, I had a pharmaceutical client that decided out of the blue that they wanted to put a, a Foo Fighters song into their uh, presentation. And I had to go into the job of explaining to them that, no, you can't do that without paying for it. You're going to pay big bucks. And then they measure their expectations of what it takes to use uh, all the rules of fair play and this and that. And then you have to be the person to say, no, that doesn't apply in this particular case. You have to be very, very light. So they eventually came back to me with a uh, hold harmless document that said, um, we're not going to hold uh, the the company won't hold us harmless, uh, will hold us harmless for the use of the song if we get sued. And I said, guess what? That's not worth anything because I'm the first guy they're going to come after and uh, and sue me. So um, I lost that particular job, mid-job, which is a very interesting uh, aspect into itself. Uh, but I, I have my my wits about me, not knowing that I have to look over my shoulder for the music police to come visiting. Yeah. Jason. Answer the question with a question. How am I supposed to uproot the 30% that I've already done, which would have to be uprooted and, and be genuine about this? This, this sounds glib, but ask for their help in solving the problem they've just put forward. How am I supposed to do that if I am this far through this um, given the other things that are at stake here. Uh, CJ. And no doubt making your, uh, making your customer or your client a part of the solution makes it infinitely easier to have them accept the uh, conclusion you come to. The other thing you've got to remember is you, they hired you for a reason. You are ostensibly the subject matter expert in whatever you're doing. Uh, so you, you know your stuff and you need, and part of knowing your stuff is explaining uh, to the person on the other end, what's realistic and what's not. So, uh, t- to some degree, there's a you know, there's a diplomatic and professional way to go about it. But you've got to just be brutal facts with the person on the other side of the table and let them know what's possible and what's not. And the, and really, at every step of the way, I consider it my job to lay out what it would cost to say yes to that particular ask. And then, hey, you can. I'm going to lay out all the facts and let you make the decision. But it's my responsibility to properly inform you of what's the cost. And I think that takes us to the next question. Rob Bullock from Fond du Lac, Wisconsin. How do you differentiate between managing scope creep and a product uh, management capacity versus a project management capacity? And what strategies do you find most effective in each role? Is a difference between product and project. Craig, what do you think? Yeah, so we actually do both. <laughs> we're, we're a services and software company. Um, from a software perspective, it's it's not necessarily creep uh, unless you have a you know hard uh, release date that you're trying to hit. Uh, but typically for every release we do, we'll have here are the absolute must-haves, and then we have an overflow of things that we'll try to get to but can't promise and then uh and and that's it and then uh, we've already scoped each of those features to within a number of man days uh such that if somebody has some new thing that they need absolutely need in this release we either shift the date out or swap uh, other other parts out uh, because you know you just can't um 
add resources without adding to cost or, or shifting it out, as I said. Uh, and so for some, it's absolutely worth it. Um, I, typically, people will come up with ideas, and they're always a good idea. If it wasn't a good idea, they wouldn't have proposed it. But it's when you put it in relative terms to other features, then it becomes a lot easier to make decisions on of, oh, yeah, when, you know, with that feature, yeah, this is not as good as that or not important as much. So uh, it can wait till the next release and whatnot. So it is a little bit different from project scope. Um, and But it's the same sort of thing of how do you deal with those trade-offs? Uh, does the customer want to do a change order to uh, increase the uh, cost of the project or extend the timeline? Um, and with product, it's really about pushing the data out or, or adding uh, resource cost. Craig, when I was listening to you, it struck me that um, have you had circumstances come up where something has changed in technology or in tools or something where uh, that's what knocked the project off? And how do you handle when it's not something internal and process oriented, but maybe a technological change that you're going, oh, we've been building on this platform, but now there's this new thing and we really should stop and reconsider it. Does that ever affect these things? Probably, I'd say, on every project. <laughs> uh, <you> know, <laughs> we, we, uh, okay. <laughs> um, there might be one that it hasn't affected, but you know, we deal with large uh, infrastructure. And so there's a ton of technology and, and people are even worse, but there's a lot of technology involved and sometimes they're not compatible. And it's only and because we deal with the uh, you know transition and migration of things that's when stuff breaks. And, uh, and a lot of this is purely unknown. We had a system once that hadn't been re uh, rebooted in five or six years, and they were scared to death that it wasn't going to come back on. Um, there's a lot of those sort of unknowns that we've seen enough that uh, I forgot who was talking about uh, earlier about if you don't know, you know, adding a lot of contingency, contingency to those. Um, and also just being upfront with the client uh, especially if it's TNM, if it's easier, but does to do some sort of shared risk. Hey, this hasn't been rebooted in that many years. <laughs> um, years. <laughs> you know, oh, man. let's let's put in this amount and uh, just be upfront about it. Again, transparency in a lot of these things really helps. Yeah, good communication solves a lot of problems in advance. Ryan, your thoughts? I think the product management um, side of this is a lot harder to manage scope creep around because you don't have that separation of parties and separation of organizations. So, you know, when there's a a client to be managed and a budget to be managed and, and money changing hands a little bit in a little bit more obvious way, this tends to be easier to stay disciplined around than in a product management capacity where uh, you're kind of guessing with regard to what it is that the demands are going to be of the market on your product and what their priorities are are going to be, right? I mean, the, the nature of of building a product is that you're taking a little bit of risk up front to proactively create something that the market is probably going to want. And while um, more advanced uh, software companies and software tool sets have a community voice forum that helps dictate what the backlog uh, looks like from a prioritization standpoint, there isn't a whole lot of nuance out there in that customer voice to speak to how quickly do we need it? What would we be willing to, you know, pay for it? And, uh, and, and so that's where, where one's judgment in a product management capacity becomes all that more important. Great conversation. Let's move on to the next question. 
Alexander Knight is back with another question. What kind of conversation do you have with a client that doesn't understand software development that gets upset when they want one more thing to an already planned release that has been locked down? Ryan, start us off. I said it uh, earlier. I'll just repeat one thing. You know, we're costing our end users uh, when we are delaying the launch of a broader feature set for the sake of of one small thing. We've always got the benefit in software of a second phase, unlike construction, where we're going to pour concrete, where we're going to, you know, deliver a, a site and, and want it to be usable in a way that isn't an active construction site that isn't an active job site software we've got you know we've got some advantages and so uh there's always phase two mark so in architecture and engineering we have phases to a project and each phase might be you might start with pre-design schematic design go on to design development during that we have a submission and that submission gets reviewed by the owner and they make comments and we don't go on to the next phase until the previous phase was accepted. So by doing this, it, it communicates to them that, boy, if we do a change down the line, it means we're going to maybe face going back and redoing submissions, which gets very expensive. So it's I don't know how you would directly apply that to a smaller scope, but uh, by having some kind of key date in a schedule, at this point we're going to make this deliverable. We really can't go back and do uh, add certain changes. Yeah, there's similar things in in uh, things like creative work, picture lock, and things like that. I mean, you know, up to this point, a change is going to be okay. Past this date, past this sign off, it's a big deal, and you really should think very long and hard about whether you want to add something in there. Yeah, I wanted to add to what you were saying, Bill. Is that never, ever, ever? You know that term. Uh, show the client how easy it is to make some changes. Because then they come to expect them and that's, and understand the consequences to be small. Uh, so try to keep a little bit of the smoke and mirrors between you and the client when it comes to making changes at their request. Yeah, I, I've actually faced that more times than I can tell you. I mean, uh, yeah, I won't tell the air conditioning in Arizona story, but uh, knowing how to do something simply and quickly is usually the result of years of experience. And so when you're able to do that for a client, it's really hard for them to understand that it it really isn't easy for anybody to do that. It might be easy for you because you have a specific set of skills. It might be easy for your organization because you're constructed in a certain way. But that doesn't mean the actual thing that you're trying to ask them to do is inherently easy itself. Let's go to the next question. Talalek Lopez Waterman on the move right now. In my world, if there's no scope creep, I'm not doing my job. How do we keep creativity pumping in a very tightly controlled system? Jason, start us off here. I love this question, and I'm sure Talalek knows the answer. Remind them why they are doing what they are doing. Because in Talalek, you know, if you're going to hire a lighting designer, his job is to push that is his job, you know, create something and then make it better and then make it better and then throw three things at the wall and see whether or not it's, you know, it, it will work in the time allowed. But again, it just comes back to instead of the how from uh, from my last answer, it's the why. Why are you doing this? And, um, you know, if, if you live and breathe in a creative industry, um, the answer is to push it. Mark Giuliani. 
So it's really, you know, it's the left side of the brain, the right side of the brain, but it really has to do with how do you budget enough time in the proposal before you even submit your pricing to define a number of hours set aside for the creative process. It's, it's hard to know how long it's going to take when you go into a project, but from years of experience, you start to say, we're going to need this amount of time. We're going to budget this part of the project to creativity. Yeah, and it, this is just a personal thing to me, but boy, when I was growing up in this, I used to think we, we had, you know, the suits and the creatives, and there was a pretty hard line between them. As I matured and got a little more intelligent, I started to realize that even people who have, quote, non-creative jobs often exhibit a ton of creativity, and they have the same set of skills. They just apply them differently, or they look at different metrics, and I've, I started gaining more respect for the people who are on the other side of that dividing line. And it stood me in really good stead because sometimes later in life when I was dealing with somebody who was in a more structured or rigid thing, if you can find a way to work with them to help them use that side of themselves, sometimes you get really great results. I often thought, you know, it's when you tell somebody that you're not creative that they're definitely pushing them toward not being creative. If you do the opposite and you say, you know, is there a way we could work this out? I mean, you know, yes, it's the budget and things like that, but can you think of any way possible we might be able to get everybody happy and find a median or something like that? Suddenly they become very creative and help you work things out. That's been my experience anyway. Let's go to the next question. Roscoe Jones, Madison, Indiana. Creative people are often inspired during production. How have you learned to rein them in? Do you like to work with such highly inspired people? CJ, start us off. I always looked at this as the as the relationship between a director and a producer on a film set, right? The, a director is going to have a vision. It's the producer's job to figure out how realistic is it or how do we get to that this, that outcome and not break the bank. Uh, so I personally enjoy those types of relationships. Um, sometimes I'm on the creative end of it where I'm having the crazy out of, out, you know, pie in the sky ideas. And other times I'm the one who's trying to be grounded in reality. I like to, I like to problem solve. And for me, when I'm the one who is on the producer role or on the, you know, the grounded in reality role where I'm trying to take somebody's vision and figure out, okay, based on what... I, I appreciate the meal that you're trying to cook, but these are the ingredients that I have in the pantry and the stores are closed. What am I going to make? That's, I really, really enjoy that process. And really, it's not, a, it's not contentious. It's a conversation of how can I get as close to what you want to achieve based on what I've got. Mark? So uh, that's a good explanation, CJ. But uh, I think if it's a consultant that's outside of your internal office, it's contracts. You set the budget in the contracts. Internally, when you have creative people that may be going on for longer than the budget allows, you sit down and look at the reports and say, you know, we only have so many dollars left to get this through to the end. So we need to start focusing and, and getting the results. Craig? And I'd, I'd also say, I think there's been a lot written about how creativity um, does well with some limits. And so saying that, you know, you can be creative, but here's a box. And all of a sudden someone says, oh, well, if I have to fit it in that box, and then they have some brainstorm of some new thought. So I think having some limits around creativity is a good thing. Amen to that. Next question. Next one in from Robert Sababity in Poland. I've found that if I give something extra to the customer for free, then he expects it to have it for free the next time. 
Is it not better to show the price and then discount it on a one-off basis? Let's start with CJ. I definitely uh, am will acknowledge when I'm giving something a little extra for free. Uh, I don't always necessarily put it on a line item on an invoice with a credit uh, to balance it out. But I try to have a relationship with people with whom I'm doing business where I can say, hey, you know, I've got enough extra in the tank to do it this time, but that might not always be the case. I'm not always going to be in a position to do this for free. Um, but based on what we're trying to achieve and what we've got uh, in, in terms of resources right now, I think I'm going to slide this one in there. But it's definitely, it's not a black and white issue. It's going to vary on the personality that you're dealing with from the customer's perspective. Mark Giuliani. I agree. But uh, another way to, another tool is a change log. You don't have to put a price on the change log. You just keep a list of all the things that were changed from the original scope. Mitchell. Giving away things for free is very bad because people will treat it like the dreck that it is sometimes. And uh, you may put a lot of effort into something that uh, they think is free. And uh, what do I care about this? It was free. Um, so I, I like what you're doing there, Robert. I think it makes sense to uh, put the full price if you have to itemize the prices and then discount it so that the value is established for what that is that you're doing. The value is important. Craig? Yeah, I'd say, uh, uh, you know, typically if we're doing something that normally we would charge extra for, but uh, I don't know if it was CJ or someone was saying that if you're farther ahead, it's a, I, I look at the extra margin to be able to use that for customer sat and, and just say, look, stars are aligning on this. So we're ahead of the game. So we can accommodate this change. Um, can't always do that in future projects, but for the way this one worked, we can. Yeah, that's good. Uh, Jason. Yes, it is always better. And if for no other reason, then you don't always remember the things that you don't write down or codify, period. CJ. And if you're earlier in your career, you're going to have to give away some more things for free than if you're more established because you're trying to provide, you're trying to offer to the marketplace a better value for the service that you provide. And I always say it's the common adage, you can have it good, you can have it fast, or you can have it cheap, pick two. Uh, but when you are increasing the amount of value that you're delivering to someone by giving them some of those things for free, then that helps you get the next job and the following job. And it's tough to assign a value to that intangible of a repeat business. But it's it's that guy picking up the phone or he's at the golf course with one of his friends and says, oh, I really like that thing. Uh, that commercial that you put out or that piece of software that you guys are working on. How did you do that? Oh, I talked to their, you know, so-and-so's consulting firm. They did a really good job with me. That's going to be your most valuable repeat business. So never uh, forget about that intangible uh, benefit of the repeat business and the customer relationship. Ryan? One thing we haven't really mentioned yet is how important it is to understand where we're at in the project life cycle when we make the decision about whether we're going to change order a particular request or not. If it's early on, it is naive to think that this thing will not have an impact on the budget or that the project is not going to go over budget. If we are, you know, right at the uh, finish line and we've had a series of kind of fortunate strokes in our favor, then we, we might have a different, uh, a different attitude about it. So uh, just, just be careful not to, you know, kind of get into that habit too early or to get too optimistic too early. Don't count your chickens before they have hatched. 
Mark? So it's always easier to keep an existing client than go find new clients. So it's in regarding all these changes, you keep a log and then you make a decision. Is this going to be something that keeps the competition away and allows me to keep a client? And Mitchell? Here's the danger of doing stuff on the cheap, whether it's free or just a re greatly reduced. And I'll, I'll make it a real quick case study. Um, we worked with a, uh, a, a medium-sized cable channel, and uh, we did all the work, and we bent over backwards to do stuff on, on the cheap, so to speak, because we wanted to be recognized as they made their move. They ended up being bought by a much larger company, uh, and um, what happened was we lost all the work. And one day we went to the client and said, what happened? We thought we were your best friends making things happen. And they said, well, we'll make sure that when the inexpensive cheap stuff comes along, we'll give it to you because you seem to be really good at doing that. And that's the moral of the story. Be careful. Yeah, I was going to say something similar. I learned at some point your pricing structure is marketing material. And it's very much what you were just talking about. I mean, essentially, it's you saying to the market, here's what we're worth. Uh, I used to do two pro bono projects every year kind of in the heart of my career because I really wanted to stretch out creatively. And if you're doing something pro bono for a, a registered 501c3, you don't have to charge anything. But in every case, I did retail invoices for them. And I said, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to bill you full ticket. But then I'm going to make a donation to the charity that offsets either all or all, but, you know, a hard labor cost or something. And it moved me up in a category of perception for them. And when they were recommending me to the other, they were recommending at my retail rates, not at some discount saying this guy can do it for cheap. It was he's expensive, but he's worth it. At least that's what we found. And the next thing you know, you're pricing. So I always thought of of. That kind of thing, your, your pricing is kind of part of your marketing, and you have to be aware of that. Next question. Kenny Hampton from Greenville, Illinois. Do wise project decision makers factor in contingency assets specifically for planning for expected scope creep? Ryan, what do you think? Uh, should we build in contingency in one area, in many areas? Absolutely. Should we be doing it to plan for scope creep? I would say it's not necessarily to accommodate scope creep. I would say it's to accommodate things that you don't necessarily, um, you can't necessarily foresee. A perfect example in construction or in long-term software implementations is turnover. If you think about an organization having a 10% attrition rate, right? 10% of employees in a particular year might choose to move on then a multi-year project with 20 people on it is, is going to experience a handful of people that leave from start of the project to the end of the project. And that's something that's going to have an implication on budget. Uh, you know, executive turnover on the client side is another thing that's definitely going to have an impact. So that's one of many examples of something outside of scope creep that needs to be uh, built in as a contingency. Just as so the back end knows, I'm going to run a little bit over because we only get this expertise generally once a month. And as long as we've got you guys here, I'm going to keep you on. So next, uh, Craig McFarland had a point. Yeah, I, I, I'll just add on a little bit. The, the um, Again, the, the contingency is we add to 10% in uh, mostly because when we think about, you know, the all the line items that make up uh, a statement of work or a quote for a given job, each of those are going to have varying degrees of accuracy on the actual estimate uh, for that work. And so by adding a contingency, you're sort of 
peanut butter is spreading across all of them, some variations so that you can cover for one of them being a little off. So it's not as much about the scope creep as Ryan was mentioning that it's, it's to cover um, inconsistent estimations or whatever. So let's go to our last question. Douglas Carmichael asks, uh, how do you manage cross-cultural issues when balancing project realities with client expectations? Are there any nasty surprises? Jason, start us off. Let me start by saying I'm not sure if I'm if my answer is going to fully encapsulate what I think you mean by cross-cultural. Um, I, I don't I'm not sure if you're using that in, in the way I'm going to answer it. To me, the culture is that the contract dictates the terms. And at the end of the day, anything that is not in the contract is not part of the term. As such, there's there's very little to navigate, if I'm understanding you correctly. CJ? Yeah, I always uh, – somebody taught me in a sales seminar uh, that, you know, we all know the golden, route, the golden rule of treat others the way you'd like to be treated. The platinum rule, though, was treat others as they would have you treat them, uh, meaning you need to adapt yourself – from a cultural perspective to how that other business or how that other individual operates. If you are an extremely analytical, extremely fact-based, I'm going to put everything into a cell on a spreadsheet before I enter into a conversation with someone. And you're going in to talk to somebody who's a driver or somebody who's an expressive individual who's, they're going to kind of wing it and they're going to fly by the seat of their pants and talk out loud a lot or think out loud. Everybody talks out loud. I would think, uh, think out loud a lot and kind of come up with their ideas on the fly, you've got to not be off put by that and resist the urge to, you know, mold the conversation into what's more valuable for you. You've got to, you know, take the game plan that you laid out and present it in a slightly different way so that even though the culture of your business may be different from the culture of your client's business, that you're always communicating and tailoring your message to the person on the other side of the table. And it's usually through that way that you avoid a, a mismatch in expectations and then somebody uh, having feelings on the other side of it. What a great discretion. I want to thank you specifically, Ryan, CJ, Mark. Um, uh, who did I miss? I missed somebody here. Uh, Craig. Craig. Uh, having you guys show up once a month to help us navigate this minefield of these kind of business discussions is incredibly valuable. And we are hugely thankful for your time and for your energy and efforts and just the wisdom that you passed along today. I know I think everybody feels the same way I do, which is that I come away from these feeling much more able to think about these things smartly and not run into the pitfalls of the things like we're talking about. I mean, I, I have literally seen companies go under, particularly in their early days, because they didn't understand these kinds of issues specifically, and they've gotten way in over their heads, and the next thing you know, they're having trouble continuing in business because they didn't understand this kind of thing. So hugely valuable and tremendous expertise, and we appreciate it, each and every one of you coming in today. Don't forget, tomorrow, the Apple the Motion Lower Thirds Lab. Our friend from London, Alex Golner, will be here taking us through how lower thirds work. You'll learn a lot creatively and practically. Uh, also, as always, at the end of everything, uh, our Taloc Traversal today, we traveled 46,792 miles. That's 75,305 kilometers or more than 370 million 
plastic bananas laid end to end. Why in the world anyone would ever want to do that? I have no clue. But that's the reality. That's how far we went to get you the answers today that you've gotten. And we hope we'll see you back tomorrow to do more of it. Watch this credit roll at the end because along with our panelists, along with everybody in the back end who's been working so diligently to bring this show to you and all of our people watching who provide us with questions today. None of this would be possible without all of you, and we appreciate it. We'll see you all tomorrow. Does anyone else have the urge to listen to Radiohead right now? <laughs> you guys did a great job. That was a fabulous discussion. I really enjoyed that. Am I the only one that wants to release a product called a creep scope, where you could just like <laughs> look at a project and... No, no, you do not want to put that on the internet. You do not want that website. You do not want any. I'm There's just some telling interesting you. No. Level domains to put with that project. This you is a hard no. Trust me. <laughs> anyway, thank you. Bill. Discussion. Thank you Thanks, all for guys. coming in. Truly appreciate it. Thanks, everyone. We'll see y'all tomorrow.